This is a reading from Proverbs 4, 18 to 23. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't even know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's entire body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The word of the Lord. All right. How you guys doing? I've had a lot of stuff already. Just one 60-minute sermon to go, and then we're done, guys. Just kidding. I'm going to try to edit on the fly, actually. Um, so just pray the Holy Spirit helps me do that um, for all of our benefit. Allison and I, my wife and I, were getting on the train yesterday, and um, one of our neighbors was, was down there, and um, someone that Allison, mostly Allison, knows from the YMCA and from school drop-off. And she was like so shocked because she knows we have four kids and people see us without their kids. They're like, where are they? What have you done with them? Um, who, who would watch all four of them? Let me have their name. Um, and we're like, we, you know, we we're like grandma. And um, she asked where we were going. And we, we told her and then we asked where she was going. She said she was going to a, 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 a Sukkot uh, celebration um, to, to uh, observe this Jewish holiday. What we hear about in the Gospels as the Feast of Tabernacles, which is being celebrated all across our city right now. And she said, that, she just said it this exact way. She said, my religious sister, and she just rolled her eyes, like huge, magnificent eye roll all the way around, um, is, ha- is having us out to this, to this, this Feast of Tabernacles celebration. And I, she's like, I guess she was sort of like, everything about her body language and tone communicated lame. Um, but she said, we're, we're going, and I guess the only thing cool about it is the tabernacle that they've built is, is beside the New York City Public Library in Midtown, so that'll be something the, kid, the kids will like. After we parted ways, I was like, Allison, do you think she knows that, like, what I do for, uh, for work? Um, and Allison was like, yeah, she does. I was like, cool. Just let it out there. Uh, and we just started, started this conversation between us about the, the differences between uh, people who consider themselves spiritual or religious and those who do not. And many of our neighbors, to many of our neighbors, religion is something just to roll their eyes at. Being spiritual is something that's maybe a personal addition to their life if they have time, you know, as, as periodic stress relief is necessary. But uh, it, it, for the most part, it's not seen as something that's essential and central uh, to many of our, our neighbors' lives. And I say that with my, with my friend who we, who we saw on the subway with no judgment to her whatsoever. Um, how someone practices their, their spirituality, if you're not a part of that thing, can seem really bizarre. And so she was communicating the nature of how bizarre it seemed. And maybe you're, you're here visiting because you know someone who's being baptized or, or a guest invited you and, and all what we've done already seems bizarre to you. Well, thanks for staying. Um, the, whole, the whole exchange there just got me thinking about that. What, what, is, what makes someone spiritual? It's a question that I circle back to in my heart quite, quite a bit. Um, and, and the question that I, I find most directly attached to that, and it's not the question that I would have associated with it when I was younger. It would have been all about, do you attend services and do you read certain texts and do you pray a certain number of time? And what, what about your, your finances and all these things? And 
But you can be spiritual, of course, or, or even religious and not do those things. So what's the question that makes someone spiritual? And the thing that I keep coming back to is, what do you want? Or maybe, what do you want most? People's outward expression can vary quite a bit, but the existence of their spirituality comes back to, what do you want most for real? And that hidden interior part of your life, in your, in your thought processes, in, your, in, your, in your, the seat of desire in your life, what do you want most? There's a Catholic theologian, Ronald Rollheiser, who says something in his book, The Holy Longing, that I, I, I resonate with this. Whatever the expression, everyone is ultimately talking about the same thing, an unquenchable fire, a restlessness, longing, a disquiet, a hunger, a loneliness, a gnawing nostalgia, a wildness that can't be tamed, a congenital, all-embracing ache that lies at the center of human experience and is the ultimate force that drives everything else. This dis-ease is universal. Desire gives no exemptions. Spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire, what we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us. That is our spirituality. So whatever you think about the claims of Christianity, uh, about the, the authority of the scriptures, about the Holy Spirit, there's something that is an unquenchable fire in your life and how you process that through your actual actions, choices, thought processes is your spirituality. <laughs> Even if you wouldn't label it that. Rollheiser says, desire is the straw that stirs the drink. So, these two sisters with totally different approaches to the world. In the same, in the same city, going to be at the, same, at the same holiday. What do they want? What is your vision of the good life? I want you to think about that. I, I know we've asked this question before in, in this room together, but I want you to think about it. I want you to start to try to even answer in your own mind, what makes a good life? What are the things you want most? I, th I think if we surveyed in this room and outside this room and amongst our neighbors, we would still get a lot of things that would line up amongst our, our list of what makes for a good life. I'll give you just five quick ones. Financial comfort. What makes a good life? Well, I, just being in a place where money isn't a constant worry. I'm not, like, I don't have to be fabulously wealthy, but where I could just live in a way where I'm not check to check, I'm, I'm, and I've got a little bit of comfort, and I know I, I, I've got some things set aside, so my family's going to be okay. Financial comfort. A, a, a real desire. Significance. To have a sense that people see me for who I really am, that they truly value that, that if I was not there, that there would be a sense of, of, of that being noticed and, and, and being lost, that I have a contribution to make, that I would genuinely, genuinely be missed if I wasn't present. Significance, deep desire of our life. Accomplishment, to have, have crushed some goals in my, in my day, to, to have done the things that I set out to do. We, we have a desire to... to, to, to have accomplishment. Another one, to be wanted. I have a desire to be desired. To know that someone else really truly wants me in their life. And that's connected certainly to significance, but that's just like the personal edge of it. I want to know that someone wants me. We, 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 we have that as a deep, deep desire in our hearts. And the last one I would say is meaning. I think you can have those other things, financial comfort and significance and accomplishment and people wanting you. Maybe even... Um, Oh, I, I skip one. Uniqueness. We want our own stories, our own experiences, our, our own knowledge, the, the things that set us apart from others. We live in, a, obviously, a hyper-individualistic culture. It affects our vision of ourselves. But I think you could have all those things in the list, and still you would be aching on some level for meaning. Something that transcends our personal lives, lives that connects us to something larger, 
that has a recognized value in the world. I was thinking about these two sisters, thinking about my own life, my own neighbors, seeking, right? So if you think about that, seeking to have the deepest needs of your life met in a variety of different ways. And ultimately what the scripture talks about uh, that, that, you know, we use a word like sin, and we've talked about this definition of it many times in, in Trinity Grace Park Slope, but sin is not just like living an outwardly rebellious lifestyle, although of course, of course that, that's part of it, but it's trying to meet the deepest needs of your life without considering God. It's basically saying, I'll take it from here, I'll be my own God, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of curate the desires of my own soul, and I'll, and I'll live, live from that place. But as I thought about those two sisters, I thought about something that I've, I've heard said before, that there, are, there is no such thing as an unspiritual person. Spirituality is not your preferred religious assembly or the sacred literature that offends you the least. It's how you deal with this unquenchable fire and what that unquenchable fire centers around. So I want to come back to something that we, we started to say last week, and we're going we're gonna to say more fully this week, and I want us to continue saying it throughout this, this new series, The Wellspring of Life, uh, that's going to take us up to Advent. And it's basically this. For most of us, our struggle is not that we don't know how we should live. For most of us, we're not, our, our trouble isn't at the level of information. We talked about the story of Jonah last week, that Jonah uh, knew what God was asking him to do. It wasn't that he didn't have vision, It was just that he was unwilling to become the person who could live out that vision. He was living from a place of a divided heart. I'm I'm someone that I I sense God's calling me. I know what God's inviting me to do, but I don't want to do it. I want to do something else. And that tension inside of Jonah sort of makes its way through the whole story. And it makes its way through our stories. Most of us, our issues are not primarily with information, but with willingness. Our incorrect thinking can be adjusted often in a a very quick way, but broken desires and how we act on those broken desires can shape and guide our entire life. To take an idea that's that's laid out um, in in James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, he, he, he puts it this way, we have reduced human beings to thinking things. And if you do that, you will believe that if you want to change someone, then you just have to get them the right information. But information is not enough because we are not simply thinking things. We are first and foremost foremost, creatures of desire, and we are much more driven at the level of our wants and desires, at the level of our thoughts and intellect. That's why for for many of us, bad habits are are not changed because, oh, we found out they were a bad habit. Like, oh, I didn't even know this was a bad habit. We we change it because we, we intentionally engage in a repeated process of new actions. And, and it's the reason why sermons are only so effective. Like, well, you sure give a lot of time to them. Well, you can be inspired. And many of you have been inspired in, in, in religious gathering and church services. But you haven't been thoroughly changed in a lasting way. Why is that? Because it's not just like hearing and agreeing, meant giving mental assent to the information that was shared that changes your heart. We are people who live from the seat of our desires. And if that is true then we have found ourselves on the territory of this psalm, Psalm Psalm 4. And this is an an old saying taken from a collection of wisdom literature that is meant to help guide people who are are wanting to shape their life around the way of God. And, And this little phrase, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So 
Proverbs is telling us we weren't just thinking things centuries ago. Above all else, guard your hearts. Everything that you do flows from it. Other translations say, put it this way, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of your life. This is pointing us to pay attention to the seat of desire in our lives. It's saying, be very protective of of what you let work itself down into that matrix framework structure of what you say makes for a good life. Be careful of what you let lodge itself in your heart as being essential for for life being good. So that's what we're going to do. From now until Advent, we're going to consider God and consider our hearts together. I truly believe God wants you, wants me, wants our church to live from a full and united heart. And that's going to require really, really understanding rival desires that have gotten in. I was in a conversation the other week with a friend who's, who's been processing Christianity, who's been coming to the church for a while, who, who uh, I, my, you know, my favorite conversations are people who are just coming at it from scratch. And he said something, he was like, I, I really like some of the stuff that I hear, and then I find myself in the middle of a week, and my kids are stressing me out, and I'm doing things I don't want to do, and all the things I do want to do, I'm not doing them. I'm like, that's scripture, man, you're quoting Paul. And we were like, high five, this is fantastic. Actually, we didn't high five at all. I made that up. I made the story better by exaggerating it. No high five happened. <laughs> I confess. He sounded like Paul. And I was like, I-, I can't wait. And I pull out my phone and I scroll over to that passage. I was like, read this. It's like, that's exactly what you just said. You sound like a human being. You sound like all of us who have things that we want to do and we don't do, things we don't want to do that we find ourselves tripping over and doing over and over again. So how would you change that? How would you break out of that pattern? The Proverbs, is, the, 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 the Proverbs 4 is, is saying that the way forward is to guard your heart, to watch over it, to, to, to keep it pure, to, 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 to uh, be careful about what you shape, what you allow to shape what you want most. So we're going to just look at the few verses right before that claim, guard your heart, above all else guard your heart because it's the wellspring of your life. Your life flows from it. We're going to look at just the practical instructions right above that. Because I think as we enter this series of considering our hearts, so we're going to talk about Jesus' parable of the soils for, for the next upcoming weeks, which just talks about these different conditions that you find a heart in. Sometimes it's, 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 it's like baked in hardened clay and the seed of God falls on it and it just get, it gets snatched away. Sometimes it, it falls in, it's shallow. Sometimes it's getting choked out by the world. And then sometimes it's, it finds good soil and it grows up and it bears fruit. And we see real we see stories like this, like profound transformation at the level of character. So we're going to consider our hearts. And I want you to listen carefully to these verses above verse 23. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Like you see over and over again in the scriptures, there's two ways laid out in this passage. Uh, Jesus does the same thing, talking about a broad and a narrow way in the gospel. But here you have the scene and the unseen nature of these two ways. I just want you to consider in the most practical ways this for a moment. One of these ways is described like a dawn that begins dark. And as you progress down, it gets more and more lit and lit and lit until you're in the, the brightness of a full day. The, this, the next one is described like a deep darkness 
that's, that's so profound, this darkness, that someone's stumbling in the middle of the darkness and they don't know what's making them stumble. They can't trace their steps back and realize, how did I get myself in this position? How did I come to this place? How am I, how am I so, so hurt? So just think about those two ways for, two ways, for one moment. Think about them as, you, as, you're, as you're moving down it. The start of the, the first way, this way that the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter to the full light of day. It starts with, dark, like it's dark in the beginning, right? There are aspects of who God is and what God's doing in the world that you can't see when you begin a life with it. That's why it's so important for us to hear testimonies and see like there was an aspect, I read these, this text, I didn't understand it at all. Then I had this experience with the Holy Spirit. I went back to the same text and all of a sudden I began to see it. So it's like it's getting brighter as you go along. And so in the beginning of God calling you, there will be aspects that you don't fully understand. And if you stand at the, at the line of God's invitation, you say, I'm not moving forward. I'm not going to take a step of obedience until I understand what's on the other side. Many times we cut ourselves off. We've talked about this in our church many times. That clarity and understanding comes after we follow the invitation of obedience. So in the beginning, this pathway of God's invitation is, is concealed. But as you take steps, right? And, and the word says that his word is a lamp into our feet. It's not like a 50 lumen flashlight like it's going two miles down the road. It's like a lamp. And sometimes it's like the next step. That his word is a lamp into our feet and it's guiding our next step. And now I'm seeing a little bit more. And now I can understand a little bit more of my path. But then you get, when you talk to someone who's an old saint who's been walking with Jesus for years. And they look back and they talk about the course of their life. And they, they now see the, the hills and the valleys and the twists and the turns and, and all, the, all this, this intricacy of their life. But they see how God's plan has been at work. It's like a dawn has happened. I started reading last night, I couldn't sleep. And uh, I started reading this book by a friend of mine, Scott Sauls, who's a pastor. And he was describing losing his dream job. And how he had been, he felt like when he got this job, he'd been prepared for it for his whole life. And he got it. It was in the city. It was in a part of a church that he had admired for years. It was in connection with a church that had been his personal mentor, someone that he dearly loved. He thought he was on this phenomenal trajectory. And then his dream job was taken away. Right? And he's questioning, what, what, what on earth is happening? And now he's, he's writing now five, six, seven years after that process. And he's looking back. And it's like the day is brighter now than it was at that moment. He understands. Actually, that losing that job was one of the greatest gifts I could have received in my life. And you will hear that kind of story repeated over and over and over again. And those who are walking in this path of following God's invitation. The second way is like deep darkness. It works on the exact opposite set of principles. That, that Basically, it's really easy to start down the broad way, the broad, the broad road, um, just led by your own desires. Your temporary desires in this world, your appetites, they will shout at you. They will make themselves profoundly urgent, while our more eternal, deeper longings and desires sometimes whisper. The scripture like, says that God's voice even comes to you like a still small voice. And you will have marketers in your own like, flesh and desire screaming at you. And, 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 and maybe the advice of your coworkers. And, and life is shouting at you. These temporary desires. It's so easy to start down this road where in, in, in a time where I can't. I'm not necessarily in a big time of trouble. And I'm just following my own way. God's voice is a whisper in your surface level. Appetites and desires can be like a foghorn. I heard Andy Crouch say about alternative gods or idols in our life or other things that would lead us down this other path. Essentially that 
They begin by offering you everything and costing you nothing. But then at the end, as they're fully revealed for what they are, they end up costing you everything and not giving any of the things that they promise. You can think about sort of the nature of the way an addiction works or, or a pattern of, 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 of thought processes. There's a, there's a great cost and the, and the desires are getting, uh, the, the way that they're, they're met are leading you into darker after darker stages. So Jesus is an honest vendor at least. He says, if you come to me, it's going to cost. Like, it's a free gift that will cost you everything. The, the paradox of that. If anyone will follow me, they must take up their cross. They must die to themselves to live fully and truly. The cross comes before the resurrection. But Jesus is upfront about that. The world is more of a sleazy salesman. The hide the cost and the fine print. And it's not until you sort of wake up in this place and you're like, how did I, how did I get here? How, how am I in this bed of this person that I don't know? How am, I, how am I this far into having sort of compromised on my integrity and now there's no way that I can back out? How is it that I've become this workaholic all of a sudden when I, when I started out in a different place? How, how is it that this, this thing has gotten its hold on me and now I'm addicted to it? Or this, this thing is shaping and defining me and we end up in this black, pitch black place of not being able to understand how I even arrived here. The phrase from last week, there, are a, there is a category of desires that wage war against your soul. Acting on them actually wages war against your mind, war against your energy levels and your, your, your decision-making power, war uh, against your emotional life. There are, there's a category of desires. Hugh Hefner died just over a week ago. And there's been a lot, lots of write-ups on his life, and um, some of them are surprising. But uh, when I went through those, the list of deep, deep needs, deep desires, right? He had, a, he had an answer for every one of those, those questions. What do you want most? He had financial comfort, more than I'll, I'll ever see, more than most of us will ever see. There was no spontaneous idea that crossed his mind that he didn't have resources to act upon. What a way to live. He had recognition. It had been about 40 years or so since he walked into a room and not been, not been recognized. He had success. He was the godfather of an industry. He, he, had, he was desired. He had a, a harem of women who at least pretended to, be, to, to, to desire him for his entire life. He had individuality. He had enough stories to fill a million cocktail parties. I was struck by one, one of the pieces in the Times, though, that just sort of like peeled the veneer off a little bit. Here's a person who, on the surface, has so much of what, if you trace the, the, the sound bites of invitation that our world and culture, maybe even our own appetites, puts at us, you trace them out to their end. This guy was living the end of these desires. He had them. This is a piece in the Times. Hugh Hefner, gone to his reward at the age of 91, was a pornographer and chauvinist who got rich on masturbation, consumerism, and the exploitation of women. He aged into a leering grotesque in a captain's hat and died a pack rat in a decaying mansion where porn blared through his pathetic orgies. Hef was the grinning pimp of the sexual revolution with quaaludes for the ladies and Viagra for himself. A father of smut, addictions and eating disorders, abortions and divorce and syphilis. A pretentious huckster who published updike stories no one read while doing flesh procurement for celebrities. A revolutionary whose revolution chiefly benefited men much like himself. Hefner's legacy is the full scope of walking down the path into the darkness. <laughs> And, and it's not said from a place of, of 
Well, kind of is said from a place of judgment, isn't it? Um, but it's calling, you know, it's calling it what it is. It's sort of wiping the veneer of, 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 of us being able to do that, of us being able to curate the desires and appetites of our soul to a place of health without, without considering any authority beyond ourselves. And what actually that did to the people around this man and how they had to be sort of trampled over for this person's vision to be lived out. A life of fed desires seems so obvious and simple, so broad at first. I'm just going to do what I feel in my heart to do, but it left such a far-reaching carnage in its wake. Here's the thing. Most of us don't start out with obvious corruption. We begin with unguarded hearts. This intense desire and this willingness to try to meet them out of our own authority, our own resources, our own power. So what do we do? And that's what the rest of the series is going to be about. But I just briefly want to say the whole passage turns at this point. It kind of goes from, from, from theorist to parent, from psychologist, uh, leaning back in his chair to God, the loving father. Verse 20, my son, pay attention to what I say to you. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. How on earth do you guard your heart? The instructions are right here. Give attention to God's word. How do you guard your heart? Give regular attention to God's word. Bring your heart into contact with the word and instruction of of God. That that his Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the scriptures to to identify things that are going on in our hearts. To sort of scope out the landscape of our desires. Hebrews 4.12 says about the scriptures. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged swords. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. The Bible certainly is not your average book. It searches you. You notice things that you were overlooking before. It uncovers secrets of your, of your motivation. It allows you to, 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 to see things that you've hidden away in your heart. It allows you to look at your desires and, and name them and see what they are. Pay attention to God's word. The second is plant it in your heart. Plant it in your heart. Let it redefine your desires. You go back to that passage. Look at what it says that the word is able to do. Penetrate, even to dividing between soul and spirit. Judging between thoughts and attitudes. The seed of the word of God has the ability to get down into the crevices of our inner being. Where no one else can go. Where God who knows our, the intricacies of who we are. Is able to get his word down into that place. And, the, and a mysterious thing happens. Is it starts to rewire what you want. Before I, before I knew God, I, I thought prayer was ridiculous, right? That it was just, you know, words people are saying to a wall, or they're saying to impress one another, and then all of a sudden you begin to encounter God's presence in prayer. I, I think Jen's story of, of, I read these gospels and they were gobbledygook to me, and then I encountered the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden now I'm, 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 it's, it's searching me and I'm understanding it, and it, it's shaping the landscape of my heart. So plant it in your heart, and the last thing is act on it. Don't just be hearers, but be doers. We're only going to hit one small step of how to guard your heart today. We're going to look at this parable, the soils going forward in the rest of this series. But I, there's never been a message more simple than, than this right here. What, what's one way that you can begin to guard and protect your heart to see what desires you're living by and therefore what your spirituality is and, what's, and what, what path you're walking down? Give attention to God's word. Let it expose you. Plant it in your heart, let it begin to reform your desires, and then act on it. Bring it to life in real specific situations of your day. You're like, great. Did you bring us all the way here to tell us to read our Bibles more? 
I'm not telling you just to read your Bible. I'm telling you to get it into your bloodstream, to digest it, to meditate on it, to let it sink down from your mind into the place of your heart. I was having a conversation with a friend as we were jogging the other, other day about, about meditation. And meditating on the word of God is essentially letting it sink down from your, from, your, from your head into your heart and into your bloodstream. So it's present and active in your life in a way when real specific situations come up. So like more, you know, super popular in our, in our world, in our borough right now, like Eastern meditation focuses on emptying yourself. And, and that's the point of it. It's to, to, to clear your mind, to get to this place of sort of like peaceful no, no, nothing. <laughs> Where Christian meditation is very different. It's 100% about filling yourself. It's about putting something there to rival the lies of my own thoughts, to rival the lies of the culture, to expose and search my desires. It's to reform the landscape of my heart. I'm meditating on the word of God to be shaped by it. And I want to say, I want to say something. Um, throughout this series, we're going to get things like, like meditating on the word of God as a way to guard your heart in the most practical way. And there's things that we're not going to have time to cover on Sunday. So uh, myself and uh, the pastor at Trinity Grace Williamsburg, Tyler, are going to do a supplemental uh, interview series throughout this, throughout this um, series. And it's going to be called the Brooklyn Interview Series. How many times can I say the word series in one sentence? I don't know yet. I'm pushing the limits. But the Brooklyn interview series is going to be Tyler interviewing, uh, we're going to interview each other, we're going to interview people from our congregation, and we're going to talk about the specific ways that people are living out these things. So we have one that's going to go up this week, and it's about how the two of us as pastors study the Bible. How do we come to the scriptures and get nourishment from it? How, how do we, what's our reading plan? Where do we do it? When do we do it? It's like the most uber practical stuff of, you want to start reading the Bible and getting nourishment from it? Listen to this 20 minutes and you'll be at least a little bit further along than you were before you started, hopefully. So I want to commend that to you. And the, the last thing I'll say is there's different words for the word of God in the scriptures. This is some of the trouble of translation you run into. You've got logos, the word on the page. The word that you read, it gives you the information. And then you have rhema. And this is that mystery where God's voice is living and active in the written word. This is why Christians could read one passage a hundred times and and still get fresh things from it. Because the word is, is the speaking voice of God's spirit comes through the logos and becomes rhema in your life. I have journal after journal in in my home of marked places and dates attached to them. When God spoke through a passage I read a hundred times before and he gave me a rhema word and it shaped the direction of my life. I'm literally in the place because of these rhema words of God. When, when, when in Matthew 4, when Jesus is thinking, he says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every rhema that comes from God. We want to be a people who aren't just reading the Logos, but are hearing the rhema. This is the same voice that spoke creation. This is the same voice that, that sends a spirit. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. Something is shaping your heart. Flat out. Approaching the scriptures and listening for the living and active word of God is one way to identify the path that you're on and to shape the landscape of your heart's desires. We're going to talk about this a lot more over the next weeks, but I just wanted to set it up there. You want a practical application. This week, if more than you ever have, just make a little space to listen to the word of God. If you need some practical help, this, this podcast is, is going to go up Monday or Tuesday, and it'll just have practical instructions for how, how, to, how to read the word and get nourishment from it. How to tend to the wellspring of your life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just, 
I just celebrate this morning, God. I pray that you would keep me, God, and, and God, just even how long we've been in this room right now, you would, you, would, you would protect us from missing how beautiful it is, God, that you've rescued Ainsley and rescued Jennifer and you're rescuing us with your love, that you're using your word to reshape our hearts and lives. You're using our, your word like a light into our path to lead us from the place we are into the full bright shining of a new day. I pray you would do that, Lord. I pray right now that you would help people know how to respond to the voice of your Holy Spirit. What, what are you saying to each of us now that we need to hear? What are the rhema words that you're whispering in this church right now? May we be attentive to your word. May we respond to it. In the name of Jesus, amen.